Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. Hope you're doing well. We have the very definition of a jam-packed show for you today, so let's get right to it. Later on in the show, I have a no-holds-barred conversation with musician, songwriter, animal rights activist Moby. He has a new album out called Reprise and a documentary called Moby Doc available right now on all major VOD platforms. In the conversation, we talk about everything from using alcohol and drugs in a mis guided attempt to find happiness, to screwing up the courage to ask David Bowie to duet on one of Bowie's most famous songs, Heroes, and it was on acoustic guitar and it was in Moby's living room. That's later on in the show. First of all, I have two of the stars of In the Heights, the highly anticipated film adaptation of the Lin-Manuel Miranda Broadway smash hit show. You know Jimmy Smith's from everything from NYPD Blue in the West Wing to Star Wars Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith and How to Get Away with Murder. He plays Kevin Rosario owner of his own taxi cab service in In the Heights. Joining him is Olga Merediz, who originated the role of Claudia, the loving matriarch of the barrio in the Broadway show, and she now stars in the movie. Here's Jimmy and Olga. All right, all right, everybody sit down, sit down. It's a story of a block that was disappearing. In un barrio called Washington Heights. The streets were made of music. I am Usnavi, and you probably never heard my name. Reports of my fame are greatly exaggerated. Morning, Usnavi. Pan caliente, cafe con leche. On these blocks, you can't walk two steps without bumping into someone's big plan. I'm making moves, I'm making deals, but guess what? What? You still ain't got no skills. <laughs> well, good, Jimmy, how are you? Hi, nice Richard. Nice Richard's got you. that. Richard's got that great radio voice. <laughs> yeah. It's How are you? Me, um, well, thanks. Uh, well, thanks. Uh, it's kept me employed for years, so thank there you. There you go. Tell me a little bit about uh, shooting in Washington Heights for both of you. That must have lent uh, a special authenticity to the work. You're not on a soundstage somewhere surrounded by stagehands smoking cigarettes and looking off into the distance. It must have felt different for you. We could have been in Toronto, right? Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but no, it was uh, very authentic to be shooting there. That's where the writer is from. That's where uh, where she lives, excuse me. That's where Lynn is from. And the they used extras from the neighborhood. We they we wanted to to um, to uh, have lunch in the neighborhood and go to the Dominican bakeries in the neighborhood. And I couldn't tell who was in the movie and who was just walking down the street. You know, <laughs> it was like it was like there's a abuela, there's there's Usnavi, and it was really seamless and so authentic. And they were they were just so happy for us to be there shooting in Washington Heights. There's no other place that we could have shot it, but it's it, it, it's home for this movie, but it, it you don't have to be from Washington Heights to get the message of this movie and to get that it's about home, that it's about family, and to get the music and, and, and the joy of the dancing. And Jimmy, for you? Well, you know, Richard, the, the fact that we were shooting in Washington Heights the, the community at large was very aware of our presence there. And, well, the positivity 
just because Lynn is from that area and he's so, you know, changed the landscape of, you know, music, what, what we, how we perceive musical theater, not only with Heights, but with Hamilton as well, that the community, I think, buoyed us. So really, because it, it was just like such positivity. And I mean, that's what you want. That's what you want on the set especially when you're bearing your soul in so many different ways, right? right. Um, so that lent itself and, and helped us a great deal, I think. A dream isn't some sparkly diamond. There's no shortcuts. Sometimes it's rough. You have been associated with In the Heights for as long as there has been an In the Heights. Yes. Uh, you were nominated for a Tony for your work on Broadway. Tell me how you feel that it's now going to reach this just absolutely giant audience uh, after it's made into a film. I feel like somebody took a magic wand and tapped me on the head. It feels like I feel like the luckiest woman in the world. I feel like it's a miracle because so rare it's so rare that a theater actor gets to play their role in the movie right so it's like a magical moment for me in my career I'm so grateful and humbled and and I feel lucky and to have this whole journey with this character and with this project um, and to have been able to bring it to to the table with John Chu's visual genius I just um I feel like the luckiest girl in the world. And Jimmy, I love a quote from your director who calls In the Heights a vaccine for your soul. We've all gone through 14 or 15 months of lockdowns and, and rules. Uh, vaccines are on the mind of everyone now, but he needs it a little differently. <laughs> this is a vaccine for everyone. I know I felt better after this movie than I did going in. So tell me uh, how you feel about hearing that. Oh, Richard, it, it makes me so glad to hear you say something like that because uh, we were, you, you can imagine with the, with the lack, lockdown that happening and the pandemic and having a film that was supposed to be released a year prior for the, yeah. a big summer release, uh, whether it was, were we going to ever see movies in the same way again? It, it was, I was, it, <laughs> depressed already from the pandemic so it, it added a lot but you know things happen for a reason Richard and and we've had a lot of time to reflect not only on health but on many social questions mm -hmm. um, as as a country as a as a world and uh, you know I think as we open up this is the because of the delivery system being a musical uh, and because it it, it, it hits these very specific themes of community and family and home that are universal. And then John's visualization of it, the way he visualized the film and with these, you know, these brushstrokes of old Hollywood, it's things happen for a reason. It's the perfect little bundle of joy. That, and so it's a great thing that, that, that Lynn says it like that, that this is, you know, the vax for joy. <laughs>
That was Jimmy Smith's and Olga Merida's from In the Heights, which will be in theaters and on premium VOD on June 11th. And now let's meet Moby, musician, singer, songwriter, producer, animal rights activist. All Music says that he is among the most important dance music figures of the early 1990s. He helped bring dance music to a mainstream audience both in the United States and in the United Kingdom. He's got worldwide sales of more than 20 million albums, he's written four books, and has just released a biography that can only be called Surrealistic. It's called Moby Doc, and it tells his life story with a mix of concert footage, a unique blend of reenactments and interviews with people like David Lynch and David Bowie, lots of archival footage. It is an insightful, unvarnished look at an artist whose traumatic childhood shaped him in very profound ways, and it's available on all VOD platforms right now. Moby's new album, Reprise, sees him rework old hits with guest performers like jazz singer Gregory Porter, songwriting legend Chris Christopherson, and the Budapest Art Philharmonic Orchestra. He's re-envisioned some of his most recognizable rave classics and anthems with new arrangements for orchestra and acoustic instruments, and it is gorgeous. I began the interview by asking Moby what Reprise means to him. Sort of self-involvedly, there are three ways I can look at it. Um, the first is really almost for me, it's like it's, it's looked at in the very like broad historical personal context. Mm -hmm. Because when I was 19 years old, I was living in an abandoned factory. I didn't have running water. I didn't have a bathroom. I was making around $2,000 a year working in a record store part time playing in a punk rock band, DJing in a dive bar. And occasionally I would unpack Deutsche Grammophon records, you know, and I remember like, you know, so there I am, this insecure 19 year old kid holding up these records that seemed so sophisticated. And so to contextualize a bit, I never expected to have a record deal. Mm -hmm. I never expected to make music that anyone ever listened to. I certainly never in a trillion years expected to be able to work with an orchestra and make a record for the oldest, most respected record label in the world. So that's still like when the vinyl showed up at my house just recently, seeing the Deutsche Grammophon logo on the cover of the record, it actually seemed more in the realm of possibility that this is some strange mescaline trip. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm in the desert and none of this is real because I just never saw a world where I would be allowed to make an orchestral record with Deutsche Grammophon. So that's the sort of historical context. But then there is almost like a time travel aspect, both to listening to music, experiencing culture, rewatching movies, etc. But with remembering what the world was like and what I was like when some of these pieces of music were made. Like the song Go, you know, at the time that was made, there I was living in an abandoned factory. I had hair. The World Wide Web had not been invented yet. George Bush Sr. was president. The Soviet Union had just ceased to exist. And sort of being able to almost paradoxically live in the present, but step back into that 
time and place. Reprise. It's available wherever you buy fine music. It's a reimagining of some of his biggest hits, this time with a full orchestra and celebrity guests. Now, I asked him if revisiting some of those songs, which were chart-topping career highlights, but also represented a bad time for him personally, was difficult. This is what Moby had to say. There, there's almost a form of, in a way, like regained innocence. Hmm. And what I mean by that, and it's all, it's sort of based on a David Lynch quote that I heard at BAFTA, which is germane to yeah. talking about the movie maybe, but um, I was at a BAFTA event about 13 years ago, 14 years ago, and David Lynch was speaking and he said this one simple thing that to me was like a Saul on the road to Damascus moment where he said, creativity is beautiful. Because I'm sure as you know, like David speaks in a, he's, mm -hmm. his movies are Baroque and dark. The way he speaks is like a child. Yeah. And something about that struck me where I was like, oh, he's right. Like I, because unfortunately for a big part of my career, I got very caught up in the idea of career, of record sales, touring, red carpet events, et cetera, all the ancillary stuff, thinking that that was going to generate happiness. And what he reminded me is like, there's nothing wrong with the marketplace. There's nothing wrong with the commercial exploitation of creative, of, of art, music, what have you. But that has to be an afterthought. You know, the, the creativity itself has to be the raison d'etre for why you're making things. And that was such a, so it was a good reminder of that. And remembering that like, for me, like I expected career to deliver happiness and it didn't. Mm -hmm. Whereas art consistently has, has delivered, whether I'm not talking, whether it's making music, whether it's listening to other people's music, like some of the most transcendent emotional moments I've had have been through other people's music or being in a studio working on music. And I sort of ignored that by unfortunately becoming a little bit too fixated on career. So, so revisiting the songs, I almost feel like the slate has been wiped clean and I can see them afresh as just pieces of music, as creative expression mm -hmm. and decontextualize them from anything pertaining to career. I got the impression by watching the movie Moby Doc that uh, you were happier before all of that. When you say in the film that you were happier living in a squat than you were living in an apartment overlooking Central Park. And I wondered if that had something to do with the idea that the dream was gone. Once you get it, once you have a record that goes double platinum and money's pouring in and you, 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 you seem to have everything that you want. The, the spark that that drove you to make music every day uh, for the joy of it becomes something different. It becomes, uh, I have to, I have a staff now that I have to pay. I've got different concerns uh, than I did before. And is that what you meant when you said that you were happier living in that squat with no electricity and, and all that than living in a very luxurious way in Central Park? Well, part of it, it makes me think a little bit of the end of The Graduate, 
you know, which I would, I posit is the greatest ending to any movie ever, because normally the Hollywood ending would be, they run out of the church mm -hmm. and they're happy as opposed to sitting on the bus. <laughs> like they both have what they want and they're like, Oh, now what? Yeah. And so my entire life, I had assumed that if I had a record deal, if I had an apartment in New York, if I was able to play music that people listened to, that happiness would just magically ensue. Mm. Like it just seemed like almost like an like it was physics, you know, like if you create this world, you will be happy. You're listening to my interview with Moby. Find his album Reprise wherever you buy fine music. Watch Moby Doc on all major VOD platforms. And I ignored the stories that challenged that. You know, you ignore Ernest Hemingway, you ignore Camus, you ignore Kurt Cobain, you ignore, you know. But then I found myself with everything I'd ever dreamed of times a million. And the happiness didn't magically ensue and with there wasn't just the lack of happiness there was panic because i didn't know what else to do you know you spend your whole life thinking if i get to the mountaintop i'll be happy and you get to the mountaintop and you're not happy and you're like oh i don't know how to do anything else and there's a terror that comes with it. and i'm not looking for sympathy and i'm not complaining but i'm just saying like it's a really scary place to be which is for a while why i turned increasingly to alcohol and drugs and um, yeah, so the, looking back at the beginning, the beginning, there's potential. You know, you can, you can still hold on to falsehoods because they haven't been proven to be falsehoods yet. You know, it's, it's only when you have like the empirical basis to say, oh, my assumptions were wrong. You know, there has to be that evidence. And at that point, you're broken. And you hate it, but time passes, you almost become grateful for being broken of that falsehood. And you sort of, I start to feel almost sympathy for the people who are never broken of that idea, you know, who can spend their whole lives serving an idea that at its core is actually wrong. And when did you realize that? The, the, the documentary, and we'll talk about reprise a bit more too, but I want to follow this line. In the documentary, you talk about at one point being in Spain, you're about to get an award, you're sharing a, a what sounds like a very luxurious uh, penthouse on the floor with Madonna's down the hall and John Bon Jovi. Uh, and yet you were possessed <laughs> to jump out the window. You wanted to jump out the window and end it all. Uh, and luckily, the windows didn't open very far, so you weren't yeah. able to do it. But But what was it? Was it hitting some kind of rock bottom like that, that made you then step back and say, this isn't the thing. Staying in this hotel and being surrounded by all of this, the creature comforts isn't the thing. It's got to be about the music for me. Well, you would think, like, for example, in a rational world, if you hit your hand with a hammer and it hurts your hand, that's the end of hitting your hand with the hammer. Right. So that moment where I'm like drunk and high and depressed and anxious and suicidal, you'd think that would be a wake up call. I didn't get sober for another six years. So I spent six more years doing what we call in 12 step programs, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Right. You know, so you think to yourself, 
And the, it's so absurd where you think to yourself, okay, I'm miserable in this apartment. So let me get a fancier apartment, right? you know, and then you get to that apartment. You're like, well, I'm miserable here. And then you're like, well, maybe I need a fancier house as opposed to thinking like, no, what you need to do is actually some like good therapy, some 12 step work, get sober and look at the underlying issues that you're trying to fix with fame, that you're trying to fix with materialism and external validation. And also look at all the other people who are engaged in the same process and try and learn from their their successes and their mistakes. We're in conversation with dance music superstar, EDM superstar Moby. 20 million records, chart-topping singles, and yet a lot of that just left a void in him. He did not find happiness with the trappings of success. In this segment, he talks about some of those trappings like buying a castle. Here's more with Moby. You lived in a castle for a while. I mean, this was... I, yeah, I, I've lived in some... I mean, it's... There is a sort of Citizen Kane, Jay Gatsby aspect to it. Um, yeah, I've lived in some... Because I grew up so poor, you know, like mm -hmm. I grew up on welfare and food stamps. So I just assumed, like, once I have the perfect house, I'll be happy. Yeah. And I kept having perfect houses and being miserable... And the last time when I lived in that this crazy castle in Los Angeles, I had the most self-evident epiphany. I was sitting at my kitchen table, like looking at CNN on my laptop, eating a bowl of oatmeal. And I thought to myself, as one small person, why do I need a castle to look at my emails? You know, like, why do I need a castle as a place to like, Yep. make organic popcorn and watch 30 rock like the castle really is kind of irrelevant to like a quotidian experience mm -hmm. you picked up one of your mom's boyfriend's guitars at a young age and found music and that must have rescued you the sense that i get after having seen the documentary and learning about the the troubled childhood is that that was a moment where you had been surrounded by music before. Your grandmother, I think, was a music teacher. Your mom was musical. Uh, but picking up a guitar and finding out about The Clash really, I think, changed things for you and, and lifted you up out of uh, the trouble that you felt as a, as a youngster. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but it's almost like my limbic system, you know, neurologically my brain was assessing the world based on evidence mm. and it looked at people and was under, you know, my brain was understandably terrified of people, you know, because most of the people in my life were really scary. You know, like my mom was a smart, wonderful person, but she also battled some pretty serious mental illness and she dated hell's angels. And we lived in a house for a while with drug dealers and it was, it was, so people were scary. Mm -hmm. But then my brain looked around and sort of said, okay, well, if people are scary, what's not scary? Like where, where can we find comfort and predictability? And it almost landed on four things, um, animals, music, nature, and books. And now maybe this is sad, but like I'm 55 years old and I spend most of my time with animals, nature, music, and books. Um, 
and and people I appreciate people I tend to like them best when they're making things that I can watch on television or that I can read right um so but yeah just like natural sort of orientation based on data you know my brain choosing that which was safe predictable and had a degree of comfort attached to it you're listening to my interview with superstar moby find his album reprise wherever you buy fine music watch moby doc on all major vod platforms tell me then about working with the orchestra on on reprise this is a beautiful sounding record uh, and what I really was taken by after listening to it over and over again, that when you're in a club listening to some of the originals of these songs, there's a hypnotic thing that happens, right? There's, if you're in a club, there's a few hundred people, three, 400 people. If you're in a stadium, there's 30 or 40,000 people maybe, but you're all kind of grooving on the one thing you're all and it's kind of this communal interesting experience and hypnotic i found the new record to be equally as hypnotic but individually so i could sit here and still feel it and i think it's because it feels more organic to me it's acoustic guitars it's stringed instruments it's something that that i i, I feel has a more uh just organic touch to it so tell me a little bit about working with this orchestra to, to reform these songs uh, into the versions that we hear on reprise. Well, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And there is that ultimate utility for music is emotion. Mm. And there are so many reasons why I wanted to make this record, but ultimately it was my fascination with and my love for acoustic instruments to communicate emotion in such a unique way. Like I love electronic instruments. Mm -hmm. I love drum machines. I love synthesizers. I love loud electric guitars, but there's just, I, I mean, and it's so self-evident. I'm trying to think of a way to say it. that doesn't sound so self-evident, but there's <laughs> such a, a human organic quality to acoustic instruments played by humans. And and one of the, the sort of challenges I gave myself in making this record was to let the vulnerability be vulnerable, let the quiet be quiet, because it's very easy to make music that never gets quiet, that doesn't actually create a space where someone might feel a sense of vulnerability that people might even find uncomfortable. Like most modern music, is loud. Even when it sounds quiet, it's still loud. Like in musical terms, there are no dynamics. You know, like you have songs that start loud, begin, continue loud and end loud. And with this, in the parts of the record where an orchestra or a string, string quartet or a vocalist were playing or singing quietly, I wanted to let it remain quiet. Because some of my favorite records were made that way. Like if I go back and listen to like Simon and Garfunkel or Nick Drake, um, or Don McLean, or a lot of early like classical music. Like if you listen to Leonard Bernstein's Rhapsody in Blue, like the quiet parts are quiet. And by our modern ears, it makes us a little uncomfortable, but I'm like, but that's human, that's organic. Like the world is not this monolithic acoustic block. Like there are loud and quiet things and letting organic acoustic music reflect the way in which sound actually lives in the world. The Lonely Night, 
uh, which is a, a, a remake of one of your earlier songs here, features Chris Christopherson. And I just love listening to his voice. I, I saw him uh, perform at the City Winery in New York just before the pandemic shut everything down, so maybe a couple of years ago now. And it was a transcendent night. You know, he came out and just uh, spoke very little to the audience, just played these beautiful songs in that well-lived-in voice. And uh, I think The Lonely Night is a good example, and Chris Christopherson's vocal on that is a good example of something that makes you sit up and listen, because it is quiet. Uh, his vocal on it is it, it, it demands your attention by not slapping you in the face. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's hard for me to pick favorites, mm -hmm. you know, because there's so many people on this record, so many singers, so many performances, and they're all wonderful. I'm excluding my own, but like the other people on the record. But The Lonely Night with Chris Christopherson and Mark Lanigan, lyrically, but also the way they deliver the vocals, it kind of makes me not want to listen to young people anymore. Like, because <laughs> their voices, these are the voices of, you know, like, these are adults who've been through the dark night of the soul. And when you listen to their voices, like, you can't pretend, you know, like, there's no, I mean, it's, they're performing, but there's no artifice, you know, like, and I remember when I was mixing it, I was like, I really don't want to listen to 19 year old pop singers right now. Like I want, I want adults who've had experience, whose vocals carry the weight of experience. Um, I mean, I, I just am so lucky that I was able to get Chris to sing on this record. I, it's the power of asking, like you just realize like, because I know at some point we want to talk about David Bowie on Reprise, I do a cover version of the song Heroes, and it's inspired by playing Heroes on acoustic guitar with David Bowie in my living room. And it was one of those moments, like he was in my apartment because he was my neighbor. And I worked up my nerve and I asked and I said, do you want to play Heroes on acoustic guitar? And I was ready for him to look at me with disdain and like storm out of my apartment, almost like, how dare you? Like, you know, it's kind of like saying to Michelangelo, like, do you want to just like paint my ceiling for fun? <laughs> um, and instead he said, yes, sure. And so I got to play the greatest song ever written with the greatest musician ever written in my living room because I'm stupid enough and foolish enough to, to ask, you know, like I'd rather, I guess it's that question, like better to ask for forgiveness than permission, you know, like just, right ask, you know, make the request. And if someone says no, you deal with it. But I'd rather ask than not. David Bowie is in Moby Doc. There's archival footage of you playing together. And there are amazing photographs of you. And you were friends. You were very friendly with him. He was your neighbor and someone that you became quite close to. Um, it's interesting to be a fan, you call him greatest musician, wrote the greatest song ever, and then he becomes your friend. What part of your brain do you have to kind of shut off to allow that you can have a friendship and not constantly be about to freak yeah. out? Um, you have to shut down the normal part of your brain, <laughs> you know, because, um, and referencing an old friend of mine who's also Canadian, Mike Myers in Wayne's World, Yep. When he and Garth meet Alice Cooper in Wayne's World right. for about 20 seconds, they're holding it together. And then they fall on the ground and just say, we're not worthy. 
every second I spent with David Bowie, I wanted to throw myself on the ground and just say like, I'm not worthy. Like, because the whole time, all the time we spent together, we were friends. There was normalcy to it. We were ostensibly peers. We went on tour together Mm -hmm. as co-headliners. Everything I just said should be wrong. Like there's no part of that that's normal. Like he's the greatest musician of all time. He was my favorite musician from the time I was maybe nine years old. I'm not supposed to be friends with the greatest Mm -hmm. musician of all time. If If I go on tour, like in my mind, if I was to ever go on tour with David Bowie, I would be cleaning the tires on his tour bus. Like that's the natural order of things. Right. Um, Let's talk about the documentary a little bit, because one of the things that really struck me about it is that uh, we live in a world of social media where everything is curated and we have more access to people than we've ever had before. If you want to know what Kim Kardashian is doing right now, look Mm -hmm. on her Instagram. Uh, But we don't get a full picture of it. And quite often, um, music documentaries don't provide a full picture. They, they are um, manicured to, to present a certain thing. This Moby Doc is warts and all in many ways. You are very revealing in this. And at one point you say, the reason uh, that we try and get people to see us in exalted lights is because we don't like ourselves and we're ashamed of ourselves. And we assume that if anyone looks too closely that uh, they'll be repelled by us. And yet in this movie, you've, you've let your freak flag fly. You've, you, <laughs> you, you reveal things in uh, a, a way that, that is quite remarkable for this kind of portraiture. Uh, tell me a little bit about, about coming to those, making those decisions to animate your father's death, to have your mother treat you so coldly in the childhood trauma players section. It must've been difficult. Um, You know, it's funny, just as a quick tangent, when you said, let your freak flag fly, um, (laughs) almost cut my hair by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young came on my Spotify the other day. And so I will take slight issue because I think when David Crosby was talking about letting his freak flag fly, he was specifically talking about hair which sadly, so if my freak flag is flying, it's definitely not follicular. Um, my, my apologies. For that. a, You're listening to my interview with Moby. Find his album Reprise wherever you buy fine music. Watch Moby Doc on all major VOD platforms. I spent so many years trying to control how people perceived me. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to be seen as cooler than I was more attractive than I was, taller than I was, younger than I was. And time passed. And uh, especially when I got sober, I would, I started spending time in church basements at 12 step meetings, listening to people being honest. Mm -hmm. And it meant so much to me. Like when people were willing to be honest, especially about the things that I was ashamed of. And I simply thought if I'm going to tell my story, let me try to be honest, you know, because maybe there is potentially the capacity or uh, uh, the ability to be of service somehow to reach someone who's wrestling with their own shame, who's trying to, you know, is uncomfortable with their own issues. And maybe this is, maybe this is irrelevant and esoteric, but I tried to go back and sort of learn as much as I could about Carl Jung. And there's that central idea of like the shadow self, 
And the more I've thought about the idea of a shadow self, I think it's actually, it's almost like the awkward adolescent in us. You know, it's the part of us, like it, maybe in the 19th century, people didn't want to look at the, their sexual or their violent urges. Now we don't want to look at the uncomfortable stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, at least I didn't, I didn't want to look at like, Oh, I'm a middle-aged guy. I'm bald. I make a lot of mistakes. I say stupid things. I'm uncomfortable in a lot of situations. Like that's my shadow self, you know, the, the awkward adolescent with braces who's still here and being willing to sort of look at it, to have compassion for yourself and for that shadow self as uncomfortable as it is. We all seem to wrestle with that. And and forgive me for saying the obvious, but we live in a culture that is just so steeped with disingenuousness, you know, and sometimes it's great, but when it's Bill Clinton's memoir and it's a, it's just dishonest, you're like, why'd you bother? Like why pretend to be honest and then lie? Like if you're just try to be of service, try to be of honest, try, try to be honest. And so that's sort of the goal behind the warts and all non hagiographic approach to narrative storytelling. I really enjoyed talking to Moby. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Find reprise wherever you buy fine music. Moby Doc is available on all VOD platforms right now. Also, find In the Heights in theaters on premium VOD on June 11th. Thanks to Moby, Jimmy Smits, Olga Merediz, but as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.